In the Civil Rights Act of 1968, America does move forward. And the bell of freedom rings out a little louder. Hi there, this is A Little Louder, a podcast for wonks, housers, and rabble-rousers, where we talk about fair housing, community development, and how we can use these issues to build people power and work toward equity and justice. I'm Christina Rosales. And I'm John Henneberger. And today we are recording from separate rooms, from separate locations, actually, to abide by the social distancing requirements during this uh, this global pandemic. But still, we bring you the podcast, and today we will be talking to Andrew Arendt from the National Low Income Housing Coalition, and we'll be talking about their latest report called The Gap. Andrew, thank you for being with us. Thanks for inviting me to join you. Introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us who you are, what you do, that kind of thing. Sure. I'm the Vice President of Research at the National Low Income Housing Coalition, or NLIHC, and we're a national advocacy, policy, and research organization whose mission is to achieve federal policy to ensure that America's lowest income families have decent and affordable homes. And Christina, let me just say that uh, Texas Low Income Housing Information Service, Texas Housers, has been associated with the National Low Income Housing Coalition for decades. Uh, We first became aware of them and began to work with them under, at the time, the founder of the organization, Cushing Dolbear, was leading it. And over the years, we've uh, benefited enormously. They have essentially defined advocacy around housing for poor people and especially for low-income renters. Yeah, that's right. Andrew, will you talk about the GAP report, what it measures and its main purpose? Sure. So on the research team at the coalition, uh, a lot of our work is focused on documenting the scale and the scope of the need for affordable rental housing for extremely low-income renters. And so just last week, we published the 2020 edition of The Gap. And in that report, we estimate the shortage of rental homes that are affordable and available to renters with extremely low incomes. And these are typically renters earning less than poverty. So just to put that into some context, you know, these are renters typically that are earning less than $22,000 a year for a family of three. Oftentimes they're earning much lower. And the private market can't adequately serve this population, you know, because on that level of income, assuming our typical housing cost to income standard, these renters can afford, you know, often no more than $500 or so a month. And many, many can't even afford that. And so we have this national shortage of nearly 7 million rental homes that are affordable and available to extremely low income renters. You know, in Texas, that shortage is more than 600,000. The Houston region alone has a shortage of more than 168,000 rental homes uh, for this population. Can you talk about what, um, how that's measured? So I, I know that typically it's it's that a household should not spend more than a third of their income or 30% of their income on housing. And a lot of the times the shortage, as you go farther down the income ladder, so the lowest income people have the greatest shortage. And as you go up, the shortage becomes less acute. Can you explain that idea? Oh, sure. 
what we do, you know, our methodology is we look at how many extremely low income renters there are in different communities across the country. And then we look at the supply of housing that's affordable to them. And we do that not just for extremely low income renters, but we do that for higher income groups as well. So we can look at how the shortage impacts different income groups or once you get to higher income levels, the surplus. What you see is you see this significant shortage of rental housing for those with extremely low incomes. And then that shortage starts to decline as you go up the income ladder. And once you get to like around 80% of the area median income, that shortage typically disappears. Our definition of affordable is housing that would cost no more than 30% of a household's income. And we acknowledge that that, uh, you know, some households, especially when you're extremely low income, can't even afford that amount. But the federal standard in a lot of our housing programs is that 30% standard. So we define an affordable home as one that would not take or not consume more than 30% of a household's income. But with extremely low income renters, oftentimes they're not just cost burdened, they're what we call severely cost burdened, which means they spend more than half of their income just on housing. And we know that when renters with that income level spend most of their income on housing, they sacrifice other necessities. And so we know that they spend less on things like food, transportation, healthcare. They sacrifice those things just to be able to afford their rent. So I know our listeners are generally from Texas. So can you give us some figures about the severe cost burden in Texas and the percentage of households that have affordable and available homes at sure. different income levels in Texas? Sure, yes. In the state of Texas, in terms of cost burdens, sort of mirrors the national average, so to speak. Among extremely low-income renters, nearly three-quarters of them are severely cost burdened, meaning that most extremely low-income renters are spending more than half of their income on rent and sacrificing on other necessities. And the reason for that is simply because we just don't have enough affordable housing that's available to them. And so, for example, in the state of Texas, we estimate that there's only about 29 affordable and available rental homes for every 100 extremely low-income renter. So there's that big gap where you have about 71 out of every 100 extremely low-income renters could not find or cannot find an affordable home. They are living in units that they just simply can't afford. And so they are living in rental homes that, you know, would be affordable to higher income households. They're living in rental homes that would be affordable to, say, someone with moderate income. But the extremely low-income renter cannot afford those homes, but they're still living in them because they have nowhere else to find a home. You know, nationally, there's nearly 5 million extremely low-income renters that are living in homes that would be affordable to, say, the moderate-income renter. Unfortunately, they can't afford those rental homes. These families we're talking about now, you said they're families that are roughly equivalent to living at the poverty level. As you go up the income ladder into renters who have more income, what happens to the affordability and availability of housing? You know, if you think about extremely low-income renters and what they can afford, they can only afford housing that would take less than 30% of their income. But as your income increases, like let's say your moderate income, 
you can afford all of the housing that extremely low income renters can afford. You can afford the housing that very low income renters can afford. Plus, you can afford housing that is priced in a range for moderate income renters. So in other words, you have a lot more choices as your income goes up. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, you see that, you know, because we'll often say that there are nationally, there's a little more than 7 million rental homes that technically are affordable for extremely low income renters. But many of them are occupied by people with higher incomes. They've chosen to live in a less costly apartment. And so what's actually available to extremely low income renters is only about 4 million of those 7 million units. And that's just an example of showing how higher income households have a far greater range of affordable housing options than what extremely low income renters have. And I do do wanna, you know, this does get into one other issue that, you know, we often point out filtering, which is, you know, this idea that if you develop new housing, even if it's for higher income households, you're increasing the supply. And it creates this process where where people who can afford to, they move out of their older housing, move into this newer housing. It starts these chains of moves where in the end, the new housing supply will, in this process, lower prices, relatively speaking, and more older housing becomes available to extremely low-income renters. The issue with that is, in terms of extremely low-income renters, and, and I will say the filtering process is a very important process in terms of keeping prices affordable for the typical renter. The problem, though, is that when you think of what extremely low-income renters can afford to pay, again, you know, a family of three with income around the poverty level, they can afford about $500 a month in housing costs. What they can afford to pay in rent definitely does not provide enough income to develop new housing without subsidies. But it often also doesn't provide enough revenue to landlords to maintain their housing. And so what happens is the filtering process does not result in housing that sufficiently serves extremely low-income renters. Instead, the housing just gets abandoned if it's weak markets, or it gets redeveloped into higher-cost housing in strong markets. The filtering process never stops to serve extremely low-income renters. You just brought up this sort of natural process that people point to in, in a housing market that that you know everyone's needs will be met if we just build more housing and if we just build you know, uh, luxury housing or moderate income housing. Um, it sounds like you're saying that that's not the answer. So how do we address this shortage? What what can we do? For extremely low income renters, you're right. You know, the, the, the market has a very difficult time and can't sufficiently serve extremely low income renters uh, because of the rent that the renters can afford to pay. And so what we need is just greater investment in our affordable housing programs for extremely low income renters, you know? So um, for example, you know, programs like the housing choice vouchers that help renters afford modest housing that they can find in the private market. But again, some markets don't have enough housing. And so we also need to produce more affordable rental homes through programs like the National Housing Trust Fund that works as a block grant to states to award uh, to developments, creating or preserving rental homes for extremely low-income renters. We also need to protect the deeply affordable homes that already exist, like public housing. You know, we need to reinvest in the aging subsidized stock to keep it in good physical condition. This year, the GAP report um, talks a lot about housing justice. Um, 
Can you talk about what housing justice means? First, and then just let me explain who extremely low-income renters are. About 46%, so nearly half of them, are either seniors or people with disabilities. Another third are in the labor force, many of whom are working full-time. And so in other words, about three-quarters of extremely low-income renters are seniors, people with disabilities, or in their labor force. And many others are either in school full-time or they're single, adult, single adults providing care for either a young child or for a person with a disability. The inability for extremely low-income renters to find decent, affordable homes, though, is not through any fault of their own. We have an economic and a political system that fails to serve them. So just economically, low-wage occupations, for example, don't pay enough for the median worker to afford a modest rental home. We published another report called Out of Reach in which we compare actual wages to what we call the housing wage, which is the wage the full-time worker needs to earn to afford a modest rental home in their county. Nationally, seven out of the 10 occupations that are projected to grow the most over the next 10 years pay a median wage that's too low for a full-time worker to afford even a modest one-bedroom apartment. And I'll just say these are occupations we rely on, like food service workers, home health and personal care aides, medical assistants, and some states' teachers' aides. Their median wage is not high enough to afford a modest rental home. So we have a lot of low-wage occupations that don't pay enough for people to afford modest rental housing. At the same time, as we've been saying, the private rental market doesn't sufficiently serve extremely low-income renters. At the same time, politically, we simply choose not to invest sufficient resources into our housing programs, like housing choice vouchers, like public housing, like project-based rental assistance, or like the National Housing Trust Fund. And so as a result of these political decisions, only about one out of every four eligible families actually receives housing assistance. And to us, that is the opposite of housing justice. The lack of affordable housing is not the fault of extremely low-income renters who experience the the, the dire consequences of that lack of housing. And because this shortage is created and perpetuated by both our political and our economic system, allowing that to persist to us is an injustice. And so to us, housing justice means that no one would be denied the ability to meet their own basic needs because of these systemic political and economic failures that lead to this shortage of housing. Speaking of systems, just judging by what I've read in the report, uh, Black and Latino families, people of color, they are much more likely than white people to be severely rent burdened and to experience evictions and homelessness. So can you talk about some of the, the causes for this major racial disparity that we're seeing um, as, as indicated in the report? If you have extremely low income, you're more than likely severely cost burdened by your housing. You likely cannot find an affordable rental home, regardless of your race. But we also know that people of color are more, more likely to have extremely low incomes. And so, for example, in the report, we mentioned that about 20%, so one out of five Black households, and 15% of Hispanic households have extremely low incomes, compared to only about 6% of white households. And so, you know, people of color are disproportionately impacted by this shortage of affordable rental homes. There's a number of reasons for this. 
because of past federal policies as well as because of housing discrimination, Black households are less likely to be homeowners than white households and more likely to rely on the rental market for their housing. At the same time, we know that people of color are still um, subject to significant hiring discrimination as well as lower wages. And so those things combined mean that people of color are more likely to be renters and they're more likely to be renters with extremely low incomes. Andrew, I know that the GAP report ranks large metropolitan areas across the country, but I'd like you to focus in on the Texas cities that are on your top 10 list of most and least severe problems for poor people renting housing. Sure. So, you know, you're right in pointing out that there's no metropolitan area that has an adequate supply of rental housing uh, for extremely low income renters. And so what we do is we list the metropolitan areas with the most severe shortage, and then also those with the least severe shortage. And I'll just mention that uh, Austin, uh, the Austin metropolitan area and the Houston metropolitan area, both are on our list of areas with a most severe shortage. And so Austin, we find that there's only 14 affordable and available rental homes for every 100 extremely low income renters. Houston, there's 19 affordable and available rental homes for every 100 extremely low income renter. Dallas is on that is on that list as well. Just to put that into um, some perspective nationally is that nationally we find there's about 36. And one of the things that we mention in the report is, you know, this year we, because we focus on federal policy, we looked at the relationship between HUD assistance or rental housing programs from the Department of Housing and Urban Development and severe housing cost burdens or the supply of extremely low income rental housing. And when you look at that relationship, it is so clear that metropolitan areas where HUD-assisted housing accounts for a higher share of the rental stock also have sort of a, a, a better supply, so to speak, or at least severe, a less severe shortage of housing for those extremely low-income renters. And so, you know, and obviously, intuitively, we know that makes sense, um, but it is just so clear when we draw that out. Uh, and so I'm just going to give an example here that compares like Boston and, and Houston, for example. You know, Boston is typically by most people seen as a region with high housing costs. It consistently shows up in our GAP report, though, as a region of least severe shortage of affordable rental homes. Minnesota has a shortage, has 47 rental homes affordable and available for every 100 extremely low-income renter households. And why is that? Well, one of the reasons is if you think of a, of a region like Boston, an older region that was well-developed before at the time that we were investing significantly in deeply subsidized housing programs for extremely low-income renters, while it now serve extremely low-income renters like public housing. And so in Boston, HUD-assisted housing accounts for about 18% of the rental stock. And at about the same time, about 58% of extremely low-income renters are severely cost burdened there, which is high, but far lower than the national rate. In comparison, if you look at the Houston region, HUD assistance accounts for only about 5% of the total rental housing stock. And as a result, about 80% of extremely low-income renters are severely cost burdened. 
And we see this relationship across, you know, many of the metropolitan areas. Uh, even when you consider, you know, how strong the housing market is, even when you consider the age of the housing stock, because older housing tends to be more affordable, even when you consider those things, housing assistance makes a significant difference on where metropolitan areas land on our ranking. That's really interesting, Andrew. And and I, you know, we talk about how a big part of the solution to this problem lies in having adequate federal resources. But this difference between the percentages of the housing stock that is deeply subsidized housing stock between Boston and Houston illustrates another problem, a public policy problem, which is essentially a local public policy problem. Because the reason why the, the Houston has such a low percentage of subsidized housing and why many Texas cities do is because local politicians in those cities made decisions in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, down to today, which discouraged housing authorities from applying aggressively for federal funds when they were available to build public housing. And the pressure to keep poor people, and especially poor people of color, out of the city, which really laid the seeds for the type of crisis that we see today. So it's not all the federal government's part is my point here. There's an important role for federal, state, and local government when it comes to meeting this significant housing need of extremely low-income renters. You know, we even if we vastly expanded federal resources for our affordable housing programs, state and local governments, particularly local governments, need to allow that housing to be developed. And, and so absolutely, I mean, that's a very good point. You know, and looking at the GAP report again, this table of least severe and most severe shortages. I noticed that San Antonio is on the list of metropolitan areas with the least severe shortage of affordable housing for extremely low-income households. And I recall that San Antonio has by far the highest percentage of publicly subsidized housing for the poor of any metropolitan area in the state because of the the work of Congressman Henry B. Gonzalez and Congressman Maury Maverick and others who led the fight to actually bring HUD funds and affordable housing funds and public housing funds to San Antonio. So that's more evidence of good local policy that really considers the needs of the poor, can reduce the problem compared to cities where there's an underlying racist and classist decision on the part of mayors and city councils to exclude the housing? This is not true for every housing market, but for most housing markets, the assumption that public subsidies are needed for rental housing at 80% of AMI, in my mind, is ridiculous. Um, and here, here's just an example, and I'll use Texas uh, metropolitan areas as an example. When you look at Austin, as we were saying, there's only 14 affordable and available rental homes for every 100 extremely low-income renter, 14. As you go up the income ladder, by the time you reach 80% of AMI, and this is again for all households up to 80% of AMI, including extremely low-income renters, so for all households up to 80% of AMI, there's more than 100 units available for every 100 renter household. There's 101 units 
or 101 affordable and available rental homes for every 100 renter household with income up to 80% of AMI. There is no shortage. And at 80% of AMI, you have even more options because you can afford units that are priced at the very low income or extremely low income price point. Like there is no shortage. And so Austin, the shortage at extremely low income is only 14 affordable and available homes for every 100 extremely low income renter households. At 80% of AMI, it's 101 rental homes for every 100 households. In Houston, there's only 19 affordable and available rental homes for every 100 extremely low income renter. But by the time you're at 80% of AMI, again, there's 101 affordable and available rental homes for every 100 renters. Uh, in Dallas, there's only 21 affordable and available rental homes for every 100 extremely low income renter, but there's 100 rental homes affordable and available for every 100 households at 80% of AMI. In nearly every housing market, if you want to address the shortage of affordable rental housing, you should address it where that shortage really exists. And that shortage really exists in every market for extremely low income renters. The gap report should be required reading for everyone who serves on a city council or in a state legislature before they make allocation decisions of limited public funds to decide what rent level and income level needs to be subsidized with limited public funds. Andrew, tell us where people could go to get the full report. Oh, sure. So if you want to see the full report, uh, it's at nlihc.org backslash gap. And our homepage has a map that you can click on your state. You can click on Texas and then click on more information and you'll see a gap data for both the state and all the largest metropolitan areas. And housers should all, while they're on your website, join the National Income Housing Coalition and get regular access to all this good type of info. Well, Christina, that's our show today. That's our show. Our music is by JT Herichmack. I'm Christina Rosales, and my co-host is John Henneberger. We'll catch you next time. Stay safe. Bye. Okay, Christina, we just did something really stupid. I did not press the record button. <laughs> Again, Andrew, this is John's first time handling the boards. I'm on the boards. <laughs> oh, Lord. oh, Lord. Okay, sorry about that.